This week's episode is brought to you by ISTE. At ISTE Live 23, on June 25th through 28th in Philadelphia and online, you'll discover what's next in education and explore ideas for using tech to revolutionize learning. Get inspired about teaching and learning as you reconnect with peers and meet an enthusiastic global community of educators. And then bring that joy back to your school. Register now at isteconference.org. Hi, and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm an editor and a reporter here at Ed Surge. We're a nonprofit newsroom covering change in education. Are schools too quick to turn student behavior issues into criminal matters? In recent years, schools have been wrestling with this issue, including whether to have police in schools, and if so, when to use them. And a lawsuit that's been playing out in South Carolina offers a powerful example of the systemic issues involved. The story started back in 2015, when a high school student captured video on her cell phone of a white school resource officer violently flipping over a black student in her desk and dragging her across the room before arresting her. What had this student done to get arrested? She declined to leave the classroom after her teacher asked her to hand over a cell phone. So the teacher called an administrator who sent in the officer. Authorities ended up also arresting the student who filmed the scene, Naya Kenny. A law in South Carolina long held that a student can be arrested for disturbing school. In other words, if a teacher thinks a student is acting out in class, that could lead to time in a juvenile detention center. Critics of this law say it's unconstitutionally vague and that it too quickly brings the criminal justice system into school settings. Opponents of the measure also say that in practice, it's been deployed far more frequently to punish students of color than white students. In fact, in the period of 2015 to 2020, black students were charged under the South Carolina disorderly conduct law at a rate of roughly seven times that of their white peers. And South Carolina isn't alone. At least 20 other states have similar laws on the books. When activist Vivian Anderson first saw that video when it hit the internet, she decided to uproot her life in Brooklyn and move to Columbia, South Carolina, where the incident took place. And she started a nonprofit called Every Black Girl, Inc. that advocates for girls like the ones at the center of this story. Part of Anderson's work has been trying to remove this disturbing school's law in South Carolina, calling attention to a lawsuit that's been filed by the student who filmed the incident and by a group called the Carolina Youth Action Project. Anderson is also at the center of a documentary film called On These Grounds, available on popular streaming services, that tells the story of this violent moment in a classroom and the subsequent fight for change. The film is made as a work of advocacy by the group Represent Justice, but it goes out of its way to try to understand the views of the many parties involved, including the campus officer, Ben Fields. Fields ended up being fired over the incident for what his bosses said was excessive use of force. But after an investigation by authorities, including one by the FBI, no charges were filed against the officer. And he maintains he was just following standard protocol and that the student was resisting. And the film shows how polarizing this incident was at the school. 
where some students held rallies in support of the campus officer, while others held rallies against police violence in schools. And it points out how this viral video became a talking point on cable news, with different spins depending on the political leanings of the network, either to defend the school officer for enforcing order, or to raise questions about why police seem to be more quickly called in about behavior by black students than white ones. Dealing with a generation of kids who do not respect authority. This is an absolute ticket to anarchy, which is exactly what many in our country would like. You know, you know how it is. Even, even you just saying that has people saying, racist. You know, no, I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> it, I mean, you can go. The problem of violence by in-school officers is not a new problem. This was the moment that documented those complaints. For Anderson, the story is not about the behavior of one officer, but about the bigger systems at play that led to the situation of a teacher calling in an officer for a minor classroom behavior issue. I started by asking Anderson about what's been learned about this moment in a classroom that started this whole thing. Yeah, the thing there was, there was no disturbance, right? Um, and it's the, the disturbance that happened was one that did not get talked about, hasn't been talked about was when she reached, when she went to email um, her support team, her social worker to say, I can't do this test. Let me, I need to go see this person. And he said, no. To back up a bit, this took place on a Monday in a math class. And the student, who the film just shares her first name as Shakara, was concerned that she didn't understand the material they were going to be tested on. So she says she asked the teacher to let her go to her resource teacher to get remedial help on the material. Shakara is a student who has a Individualized Education Program, or IEP, at the school that guarantees her extra support. But the teacher told her no. So the student went back to her desk and tried to use her laptop to email the resource teacher for help, which led her teacher to block her machine to prevent her communication. That was the first, that, that was a violation of her rights that's a federal law. Because it was in her IEP, it was, which is a federally protected um, system of getting help for a student. Absolutely. And when she asked to leave, he said no. And so at that point, she's like, okay, I, ha I can't do anything. So I'm going to sit here. And she says she's playing with her nails. And he comes over to her and says, put your cell phone away. And she's like, I don't have one. I guess maybe he thought she was going to really try to get some other type of help. But, you know, even with the investigation, they found that there was no cell phone usage. There was no um, cell phone. There was no kind of communication during that block of time because they went back and looked at records. Um, and I always say the biggest interruption was him calling in because at that point. Him calling in the police. Resource him calling officer, in the, the administration, the administrator and then administrator calling um, officer fills in because at that point I find it. Another thing that's hardly ever talked about, when she asked to leave, you said no. But when you wanted to make it a punishment, you want her to leave. So at this point, of course, if I was a student in the class, I'd be like, oh, what's going on? What's going on? They didn't call this person. They didn't call that person. Then that's when everybody gets to stop doing, you know, stop their work. That was the real interruption prior to that. And you hear Naya um, talk about it and you've and from other kids they was like nobody really knew what was going on because she hadn't really done anything but we knew something had to have happened because we see all these people coming in 
and and it, I guess it gets to this idea of the the quickness to call in a law enforcement officer. Yeah, um, when we don't see children as children anymore, when we don't um, focus in on like, okay, she's having trouble. At that point, if she's saying she's really having trouble, it, it's one thing like get out of a test, you know, and when it's like, I'm going to have you leave my classroom. And as I go back and look at it, it was never, he's like, put the phone away. And when she didn't, he called somebody to have her leave, right? It wasn't ever like, okay, yes, go to your resource officer. It was never anything like that. But it's that we see it a lot where it's like, you know what? I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to deal with this. I'll just call this person and they'll come deal with it. And so I often say it's time for us to thread out um, this concept of policing in schools. And so, and not just police in schools, but policing in schools, the policing that, because, you know, it's a certain way where, you know, in New York, because I was in New York for so long, the stop and frisk, right? In different places, you you see that, right? Where it's like, we're doing these um, profilings, right? And even teachers start profiling what type of students are. And so, because they start the first line of profile and then they bring the officers in, um, so start looking at how um, kids are policed in schools and not just by police. Um, and you saw what Sheriff Lott and different folks said that, would, you know, he shouldn't have been called in. That when we started stretching like, no, this is not what officers are called in for. This is not this is actually a classroom management. This is a student teacher, something that can be taken care of. But we're seeing more and more and we've seen across the states for the um past years and not to mention the years prior to that never got the video coverage right um so yeah it's a overlapping but think about it when you have like a criminal institution and an educational institution and nobody's accountable to each other you'll get that collapse and that overlap in a powerful scene in the documentary anderson sat down with the officer to hear his side of the story and asked him why he never apologized for the level of force used what was that like to 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 go and and you know and talk to him about the the situation and what he, you know why he did what he did and you know I guess what did, what was that like to sit there in that conversation? Um, yeah, there's a lot of emotions going through it. Um, mm, I don't know why I'm getting emotional, but it was a lot of stuff happening for me at the time. But I remember calling Shakara and I and letting them know that I was going to be sitting down talking to him because I know it can often, you know, depending on how a conversation goes, folks can be like, oh, is she on his side? You know, people have a way of making things aside, like you choose a side. And um, my intention was like to one of the things about when the directors of the documentary spoke to me about it was what like, instead of making a film that says or a documentary that's like, this is what you should think. The whole idea is to make it informative, to put all the information out there. And without him, all the information wouldn't have been out there. And to have just the honest conversation, one that I knew um, the girls weren't ready to have and they, you know, and they shouldn't went in time if ever. Um, but one of the things that we do a lot, a lot of my work is centered around restorative justice. And I had to really be with myself and say, um, am I playing God and decide who gets restorative justice? 
right? Um, there are many cases, there are many things where folks I've known personally, there are folks, um, young people I've worked with, and we go into courts and we fight for them to have this second chance to have this tell their story to hear where they're coming from and say, how can we have this look different? What other ways can we move? And I said, are you really about this work or no? You said that to yourself in a way. Yeah, I I was just constantly in conversation with myself where it's like, you know, people are going to judge me. And then I was like, is this about you or about the bigger picture? And the bigger picture was this conversation needed to take place because it's one of the core tenets of restorative justice. Right. How do we have this this most difficult conversation with the one person I'm sitting here talking to somebody who's harmed somebody I love and, you know, like harmed a young person? But do we just stop it there or do we try to reach that person so there can be a shift in behavior, so there can be a shift and awareness that even just that conversation may have struck somebody and had them look at things different. Um, And so if I moved me and what I feel and all that out of the way, um, I, I just really believe for the work that we're doing, it was the responsible thing to do. Now, after you know the multiple conversations that he has in the course of the film that the viewers get to see um you're you know that conversation that you had with him and the others do you feel like he you know moved his thinking in some way or evolved on this in any way over the course of this film there were times yeah right um there were many many times when i'm like okay we're going somewhere because we worked together for a year we're still in communication Um, and I'm not, I can't remember how old, um, Ben is, but I would say like 38 years, one conversation is not going to change 38 years of learning, right. To unlearn something. But I, I do believe there were moments, there were things that was said, there were, um, opportunities that were had where it's like, okay, there's a light bulb going off. But if you're the only one who's speaking that, you know, you got the one, you got us, you saw the documentary, you got us saying, no, this is this way. And then you had a whole group of people telling him you were right. It was terrible. They should not do you this way. This should not be this way. And so, you know, I often say, and I've often been saying like, because if you keep working out of shame and blame, right, from right and wrong, instead of like, what does taking responsibility look like? Yeah, you're going to try to, you're going to end up on the side that favors you most. And um, you got to be willing to do the work. Um, So, you know, I pray for him all the time. I'm hoping that the, um, especially because of the position he holds now to train resource officers. And, you know, I'm not, these aren't my words. These are his words. He was like, he, he even felt like resource officers are not ready to be in school. Most of them, you know, have not gotten all the things they need. So um, hopefully he's using some of what he's learned through working with us and, um, you know, having that because he said if if that day could be done over, he would have. Right. And so hopefully that's something that's always on his mind that he's using as he's interacting with other SROs on how to show up in schools for young people. I'm going to stop here and play a clip from this part of the documentary. It's a couple minutes long, but I think it's an important one. Look at the system. What system are you referring to? 
You say the system, we need to change the system. Uh, help me understand that a little bit. So when I say systems, I'm talking about governmental, education, institutionalized racism, all the policies that we create, all the laws that we create. That's what I mean about the system. Okay, so, you know, uh, you know, the systematic racism and all this kind of stuff, I think it's talking points. I think it sounds really good on its face. But it's one of those things where we're taking the onus again off the kids and saying, hey, you're not responsible for your bad behavior. What we're going to do is we're going to blame it on the system. And one of the things that you know we, we looked at with the disturbing school law was brought up a lot was a disproportional amount of black kids were arrested to white kids, right? And a disproportional amount of black kids were suspended to white kids. I mean, as you look at it as a whole, I mean, you, you go to any school district and that's going to be the case. Okay. Why is that happening, in your opinion? There is a tendency to think that Black kids are automatically at fault. This one was running the hallways and this one was running the hallways. Yet this one got the discipline referral and this one was like, well, you know, you can't do that. It's something going on. There's a way that we're with young people depending on if they're white versus children of color. And that's been statistically proven. In in these schools where the... um where it was disproportional, they also have black deputies. How do you explain that? Are these are these black deputies and these black teachers, are they part of the system that's hurting um, black Absolutely. people? Then we talk about internalized oppression. So if I see that I've been trained all my life that this is better than this, I push that same narrative and I act in accordance to. So yes. And there was a, there seemed like he, there was some, um, you know, ways in which like, you came into it with different views of what the systemic problems were. And it was interesting to see that kind of happen or like get explained or talked through because he seemed, yeah, he seemed like, um, obviously he did participate in the film and he sat down with you. So there was an interesting, there, there seemed like, you know, there seemed some interesting, um, uh, engagement by him in, in thinking through the systemic problems that you're, work is devoted to yeah i think one of the things he used to always say i just think these are catchphrases i said okay or not (laughs) like we you know or not like so what if they weren't catchphrases and like let's talk about what we're you know what they mean and what we say when we say that um and those are one of the things like constantly having a conversation um when it's like okay well he was like well what do you well how can it be systemic if they say 80% of the kids who have been arrested are black. And so the numbers don't lie. And I say, well, the question underneath it would be, why is it 80% of black kids getting arrested? If the black kids and white kids are doing the same thing, why do arrests happen over here? And that's when we talk about historical contact, systematic oppression, all the things that lead up to the things. And he's like, well... I just know 80%. And I was like, okay, now that's a talking point. That's what we would call talking points. But systematic racism, you know, institutionalized racism, who was education set up for? What are all the things that, um, what is push out? What is the school to prison pipeline? Those are real things. And then I think also um, when Sean McDaniels, because it's one thing to hear from, you know, because the conversation that we had with, um, Carrie, when we were all at the um, cafe together, um, he's just like, well, you don't know the law. And, you you know, he was talking to us like, you don't know this rule or that rule. But to hear it from a fellow officer who runs SRO programs say, here's where this has happened. And so to hear all that, that's why I love the documentary as well, because they didn't just take one voice. You heard from Lot, 
You heard from other officers. You heard from higher ed people. You heard from historians. You heard from everybody, right? And so it wasn't just like, oh, everybody's just on this side. We were like, this is the issue. And what even more so, it made it bigger than that one incident. It captured the whole. And I think once he saw we weren't talking about that one thing, and a larger conversation, I think those are the times when he's like, okay, maybe, okay. And I and I found those moments were happening throughout our time together. I thought it was a couple times when he'd be like, okay, all right, I can see that. I can see that. And so, you know, I do think it's still there, right? And so, like I tell everybody, yes, I still check in on them because if I can just keep, if there's just a little ping, if there's just that one little person tapping your shoulder, I'll keep doing it. Give me that voice. Has did now? Did he? Did all this interaction and getting to know him and talking through this with him? Did it change your view at all or thinking on these issues? No. <laughs> Not view, not view, but, or I don't know. You know what I mean? Not, not that you've like changed your mind, but like, you know, how has it changed the way you even come at the work or? I'm so, um, I think what it's done is like made me more intentional around working with adults, working with SROs, um, even, it gave me more context and more direction on how to move forward with the police free schools campaign, because I'm still very clear officers are, they should not be in schools. Um, police should not be in schools. Um, it, it made me, it has me constantly reminding myself to work with human beings, not human behavior. And so if I can keep seeing the human inside of everybody to keep moving in that way, because the same um, grace and mercy that I've been given that I share with children, I get to see where's, where's the harm that's happened to this person that they could harm another human that way, right? And so it just... It, it, it challenged me to do more work. It challenged me to go deeper. After the break, how does this activist hope the film will be used by educators? And we'll find out a new development in South Carolina law since the film came out. Stay with us. For more than four decades, the ISTE conference has been recognized as one of the world's most influential education events. It's where educators and education leaders gather to engage in hands-on learning, share best practices, and hear from the brightest minds from the world of education and beyond. At ISTE Live 23, June 25th through 28th in Philadelphia and online, you'll discover what's next in education and explore ideas for using tech to revolutionize learning. From real-world lessons that empower students to groundbreaking ways to collaborate, to leading-edge edtech tools, you'll find out how to lead next-gen learning during hundreds of strategy-packed sessions. Rediscover your passion for teaching and learning as you reconnect with peers and meet an enthusiastic global community of educators. Then bring that joy back to your school. Register today at isticonference.org. Just this year, Anderson and the students won a victory in this larger fight. In February, a federal appeals court struck down the South Carolina Disturbing Schools Law, 
agreeing with the plaintiffs that it was unconstitutionally vague. And how do you, yeah, how does that make you feel? Yeah, I, I'm learning how to um, be joyful in the win, even though, you know, because my head is always 100 steps ahead where we see like, oh, now they're using the word incorrigible. And we see in New York, they had to have that word removed from the books because that was the way they started arresting kids in school. So it's just like right now it's a win, right? And kids who've been arrested, they're going back to look at those arrests and really see um, to try to do some... Um, um, what's it called? Um, reconciliation around the harm that was created because those kids were arrested under that law. So I look at that as a win and I'm going to hold that like very excited about the win. And I know for the girls, um, you know, they're like, OK, it wasn't in vain. Anderson and those involved with the film recently released a new curricular guide designed to support restorative justice practices in classrooms. Now that the film is out there, I understand there's a, um, and it's been out there a little bit, now there's some teaching materials related to it. How do you hope this film is used in a, especially in an education setting? Well, um, we've seen it used and more and more we want it to be used that way to not, as we're um, working with educators, as we're working with school environments and we're talking about school culture and safety and nurturing, what do thriving schools look like? Um, using it to um, to actually create dialogue, to create like context for um, how, you know, not making it another thing to do at school, but to make it a core um, part of the school. So we've seen it and it's had some folks have done community conversations, schools conversations with it. They've done screenings and then they come back and it's been things that they can use to go when they go to city hall and they're going to the um, school board meetings and they're actually moving officers from their um, schools. We've seen a lot of schools separate, um, break the MOUs, the uh, memorandum of understanding between schools. And part of it is because of this documentary and because of this film and like using that to like provide even... um, Like right now, I started a fellowship for educators where they're with me for like 12 months and we're going over restorative justice practices. We're using a documentary to have them look at it and look at it from various angles. Right. And so like one is like, okay, let's put yourself in a you're you're Mr. Long now. You're the teacher. What happens? What are the ways that we can um, have this look different What are the ways and how have you seen this happen in your classroom? And even if you didn't call in an SRO or an administrator, where did you not see the child, right? And so we're using it in that context as well, using it with young people and saying like, okay, what's your next line of defense when your needs aren't being addressed, right? How do you, how do, what, how can we use this film to create a safe school for you? And what do those things look like? So using it to actually start building um, models of what school safety looks like. And I don't, and you know, really having this film help people understand safety and security are two different things. School security, we can handle that in a whole lot of ways, but school safety is more of an, it's internal before it's external first. Are you still in touch? Are you still in touch with a student who was slammed in her desk in this situation, Shakara? How's she? She's doing well um, day by day. Life, you know, beyond that, life has a whole lot of things that it throws at you. 
because, you know, her life changed that moment, not just from the assault, but she was thrust into a public eye. Her and Naya both, their whole life became this. Even if they weren't speaking it, the whole world was saying this is and to like really support them that your life is beyond that moment. That moment happened for a reason. I re really believe God has a purpose for everything and no child should have experienced what you experienced. But now what? What do we do now? How do you take ownership back of your life? How do you make that not be the crutch you use your whole life to say you couldn't go nowhere? But how do you keep moving forward beyond it? And then what can that do to help you help somebody else? And so working with them, yeah, like I told them, once I met them, I said, I'm a lifer. I'm here with y'all for life. Like, so constantly checking in to make sure they are well. Um, talk to them on a continual basis to let them know that beyond just the documentary, beyond anything, anything of that, what do you like? How are you? How is your heart today? What you got going on? Are you getting outside to get some sun? Are you enjoying yourself? Are you creating a life that you dream about? Are you having, you know, our mission is create a world where black girls thrive. What does that look like? So, yeah. So, I'm, yes. yeah, real tight with them. Yeah, talk to them all the time. <laughs> yeah, you uprooted your life to move down to South Carolina. But are you back in New York now? No, What's I'm the, here. I'm in South Carolina. Um, every black girl, we're here. We just had a conference. We have a conference. We have two conferences one in March and one in April. The one in March is for black girls and women, celebrating black girls and women and all their brilliance and joy. And the one in October we call the state of black girls what's really at stake. And we're looking at, um, it's around the time of the assault. So when I first met Naya, I said, what can I do? If you could have anything, what would it look like? And she said each year, she would want to see a conference where they bring girls together. We talk about what, you know, like what have been the changes in law? Are there new things that can happen? How can we bring people together to make things um, change best in schools? So I've been doing that conference. And like I said, March, we had 11 states, girls from girls and women from 11 states. And we had Africa here. So we've had folks traveling in to really look at what does it mean when we say um, creating th thriving school environments? What do we mean when we say police-free schools? What do we mean when we say increased mental health and awareness in schools? What do we mean when we say reallocate funding? What does that mean? And really having people take deep dives into those conversations so we can create safe, nurturing, thriving, liberatory school environments. So... Yeah, so I'm still here. I'm <laughs> still here. Well, um, thank you. I'm really, you know, it's, it's, it, it's, I know it was, it sounded like it was a lot to engage as you did in this film. Um, and, and I'm sure a lot of people are, are going to see it. So thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we bring you conversations like this one, tackling big issues in education, sometimes heavy ones like this one. If you like the show, please follow the EdSurge podcast on your favorite app, and please spread the word about the show on social media or tell a friend so we can continue to grow and expand what we do. Meanwhile, I hope you're also reading EdSurge for our news and feature articles. We have been expanding our reach by co-publishing with some bigger news outlets lately, including an article out this week that ran in USA Today on how employers are offering childcare as a benefit and what that might mean for early childhood education. This week's episode was put together by me, Jeff Young. 
And you can find me on Twitter at J.R. Young or on the web at jeffyoung.net. Editing help this week by Emily Tate Sullivan. Thanks. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.